Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck Podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A show designed to create connection, fuel compassion, activate change, and figure out just who the fuck you are. Hey gang, you're listening to the latest episode of the Who the Fuck Podcast, and I'm thrilled and privileged to be sharing the mic with self-growth enthusiast Sharon Zapata. In addition to her role as a fellow podcaster, Sharon is an author, abstract artist, award-winning presenter, and owner of the Zapata Group, referred to as the Swiss Army Knife of Creative Consulting Services. In her own words, Sharon's latest book entitled Middle Finger Happiness, Work Hard, Live Well, Don't Fuck With Me, is written for those who realize they don't have to wait to ask for permission to improve their lives because insecurity's a fucking liar. And I love that. So true. So in case you couldn't tell by the titles of our creative endeavors, we both have quite the affinity for swearing. So consider this your first and only warning. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that's near and dear to both of us, self-care. And while you'll get some suggestions for how you can tend to your own needs more effectively, this is also meant to be a lesson to all of us on the importance of self-care, which in most cases also means healing. Before we dive sort of into the full discussion, Sharon, do you want to share a little bit about yourself with our listeners? You had me at your first and final warning. <laughs> uh, you know what? That's a good introduction. That's that's me. And then also we, we left out rescue dogs. I have three rescue dogs, one rescue cat, an older son and a younger son and a husband. And I like I mean, that the, the animals made it first. The animals didn't make it. First. You know what? They would make it first with Felipe too. We're all about our dog. God, you know, I don't know. We just, we love dogs. We we, I mean, we're fe- we're fellow three dog owners. It's an aggressive amount of animals. And then you have cats, too. And you have children. I don't yes. know how you do it. Oh, we do it all. <laughs> well, no, I just have the one 12 year old. But but still, and the cat, we're not even cat people, so to speak, so to say. Yeah. But, but we have this little cat. She's going on 12 years and she's, she's cool. Obviously, um, you and I ha- have had some good conversations before. I'll be completely candid with the audience. This is our second go around of actually getting this successfully out the door. And God willing, this will actually be a production worthy episode. But I feel like one of the important things to call out is that you feel very familiar and we don't actually know each other in person. And we've talked a handful of times online. And I, and I remember because we met via Instagram and I loved your whole vibe. I felt like there was something, you know, really magnetic about the way that you communicate because it's raw and it's real and it completely aligns with my concept of being authentic and unapologetic and you emulate that there it's there yeah and it should be right so in light of thinking about sort of the umbrella of self-care you have a lot of artistic talents and and you're sort of a jane of all trades well thank you (laughs) Yeah. And so when you think about self-care in the context of your daily life, do you see that as part of your artistic experience as well, Um, even though that is something that is attached to your career? You know what? Today I was, uh, I heard a a TED Talk. Who was it? Christine Helena. Uh, It's a new one, March 2020. So it was just a couple of days ago or a couple of months ago. And she said something that resonated. And it's almost like for me, I'm constantly having to tell myself, okay, where's my mind? Where's my mind right now? Because our brain thinks super fast. It solves problems. It creates problems. It just, <laughs> it does everything, you know? And so sometimes, like you said, that self-care, is it coming through my art? I think I'm back in kindergarten 
at an older age, reliving my yeah. childhood because I went to an overcrowded school in Houston. And I remember, I remember to this day being a in line with the apron. I would even tie a knot so that the teacher couldn't take it off, you know, and uh, I would never, I never got to paint the whole year there would be a line and I'd wait there in line. And when it was my turn, paint time was over like every day. And oh, I would man, cry. I mean, it just, it just, you know, and I wanted to be Indiana Jones and a writer and a painter. I knew that. I knew that at five years old. So I remember finally the last day of school, I finally got to paint. And it was like, you know, that's what happens when there's a bunch of kids bigger than you got pushed to the back of the line. So I think now what I'm doing is I'm kind of reliving that in my my child. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that honesty too, because I mean, to be real about it, I feel like one of the things that really has blown my mind in the past couple of years, having gone through a lot of just self-work is how consistent you actually feel, how consistently, sorry, you actually feel sort of childlike in moments when you mm -hmm. are able to connect back to that. And yeah. recently I've been feeling that way a lot because of just conversations I've had around my parents and my own way of living and thinking about it as how was I raised versus who am I truly and like trying to make that distinction. Like it's interesting how we revert back sort of to that time in our life. And, and if you don't address those needs, even retroactively in some way, they sort of stay with you and, and those things can be limiting. So it's really cool that something that really stood out to you at that age is something that you've been able to apply to your adult life and make it both a creative endeavor and a career choice for yourself. That's a really great way of seeing yourself, quote unquote, to use therapy terms back then now. Exactly. Because now I don't have to wait in line. I don't have to tie my apron in a knot. You know, I can be there and, and, and create. And so going back to the dogs, and now we're talking about us as humans, the first six weeks of a dog determines their personality. My veterinarian told me that. So I'm thinking, and I just thought about this as you were talking, well, maybe those first six years of our life determine that. That's platform. actually, that's legitimately founded by science. I've read that. It, and it is, oh it is six years. It is zero through six are the most formative years of your life. Wow. So it's okay, really so funny that you said that. It's accurate. So good hypothesis. I, I feel it's been proven. Connecting the dots there. Yeah, for the doggies, you know, so you want to know why that dog maybe was it was stranded several times. One of our dogs was stranded twice, abandoned twice. And so she has a few issues, not so much now because we've had her seven years. But in the beginning, it was hard for her. So yeah. again, those first six weeks, wow, for humans, it's the first six years. Yeah. And, and, you know, it makes a lot of sense too when you think back on it because it's when things like attachment styles really develop because when you're younger, obviously, especially when you're a baby, you need that attention. However, right. when you grow up and sort of, I think five and six is probably like even when I started getting bullied. So there's not a lot of memories for me between zero and four. Very, very vague, if anything at all. My earliest memory is probably preschool, but I don't know how detailed that memory is. And it feels very sort of nebulous in that I could I identify little things, but I couldn't tell you something that impacted me emotionally there necessarily. And I feel like at the age of five is when I started having more awareness around my emotions, which also is interesting based on what you just said around the timeline of you really understanding sort of your creative self and, and starting to explore that more. And then we're told as we grow up, that's not a real job or that's not a real career or and, and culture tells us that we have we have all these different cultures that are 
that not mold you. Well, but, they're predefined. They're these like pres- they're prescribed paths too. Yeah, you know? they influence you too. Uh, different cultures, you know, don't do this, be tough, you know, uh, shake it off, you know, whatever. Those the, all these things that we're told growing up. Those are don't be so sensitive. Yeah, don't be so sensitive. And you know what? It's good to be sensitive. Sensitive people. <laughs> are so rare. Maybe if people were more sensitive, there'd be less assholes in this world. I mean, somebody needs to say it. <laughs> yeah, true. That's so true. And then we were talking about the congestion right now. We're just so overwhelmed in our emotions. And then we get attached or we get accustomed or what is the word I'm looking for? It's our daily emotions. We're used to chaos. Yeah. And for a lot of reasons right now, right? We're going through a global health crisis. In the States, we're dealing with economic fallout. We're dealing with political fallout. And it's a very uncertain time. We're on extremely shaky ground as a society, as a country, and as individuals, both as a result of that and potentially our own shit we have going on. So it's really a time for us as humans to acknowledge what we need to not only survive, but to first and foremost, survive, and then also to still have a good, enjoyable, happy, comfortable life in times such as this, because you can't just give up on yourself because everything around you sucks. If anything, you have to work even harder because we're, we've become sure. accustomed to hearing the bad news. We don't even realize that we have found comfort in chaos. I mean, I, I know I'm being you can be creating or writing and you hear the sirens go by because I live in the city and you're like, oh, it's just a siren. We're so tuned out to it. You just become part of it. I don't know. I, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's interesting that you gave that scenario because we used to live actually in Seattle in a neighborhood called Ballard, which is, has historically very much been sort of an up and coming young professionals and people who've lived there forever. And with all of the economic issues and mental health crises and addiction issues that we face as a nation and just in general as humanity, there's been a lot more trouble stirring up in these parts of the city where it really never saw it before. And when we moved there, I remember saying to my wife, Holly, I love that this is the city, but it doesn't feel like it. You don't hear sirens. I grew up going to New York City with my mom. I can sleep through it. I've learned how to let ambient noise drown out, but I also don't love to be hearing a siren every five minutes. And so right before we moved here, and we actually moved here because our car got stolen and then the people came back to our house. So it was like, peace out. (laughs) We're getting the hell out of here. Um, But that's part of the problem too, is that we were there. We felt safe. We felt comfortable and secure in where we were. And then over time, this chaos sort of ensued to the point where it was like, I literally am not even joking that it was every five minutes you were hearing a siren from zero to that in less than two years. And so I think as a society, to your point, we're becoming in a way numb to it that's really unhealthy. And not acknowledging how we actually feel about it, while it seems like sort of a survival mechanism, is actually really debilitating. And I will give an example of why I say it that way, because I would walk from my house to the store or my therapy or shops that were nearby or whatever. And I was walking on the sidewalk on a main road and there was just a guy passed out in the bushes next to an alcohol bottle. I don't know if he was on anything other than that or if he had done anything other than that. And then I crossed the other side of the street and there's a guy laid out 
passed out in front of a pep boys with his pants half hanging down his ass, which there's two things on that note. One, a woman could never do that because they couldn't take that chance. And secondly, when I said this to somebody, they said, well, that's city life. And I'm like, no, no. Acting like this is just part of the scenery. Yeah. When did it become normal to be unnormal like that? Yeah. It takes away your empathy. And I want people to be able to still empathize with people who aren't like themselves. I work on that regularly. And I think that ties to the self-care component in ignoring those things is basically dismissing the discomfort that comes with that. But then the other part, because I, I, that happens here in Houston, especially if you're downtown, I'm thinking to myself, because I have helped a homeless person and it, it turned into a giant shit show on my day. So I zoomed into that message in my memory, like, wait a minute, remember the lady who had the five kids in the car and was stranded and was homeless and you gave them Cheetos and then they were asking for water and then she needed a ride to the, the whole, I was like, wait a minute. So do you, do you see that and keep on going about your business or do you stop and go, okay, do I have the bandwidth and the energy that's going to get sucked out of me? Cause I don't know the situation to help that dude. Yeah. Cause they can escalate out. quickly. And you're right. It is about what capacity do you have to help? Um, right. And I think that applies also to things that have been happening recently around protesting as well. It's like, you can still support causes and not be in the streets protesting, at least at this point. And I think that it's scary when you see everything that's happening and knowing that philosophically, I would like to be there. Emotionally speaking, I can't do that. I can't do that. I would be just triggered eight ways from Sunday because of things that have gone on in my own life. How is it in Seattle right now with that? Is it still going on? Yeah, I have to admit, I don't know to what extent the protests are still happening here because I'm really not downtown at all anymore, but it was really, really bad for a while. I know that there's a lot going on with the police right now and reallocating funds, things that we're voting on right now. And I'll speak from personal experience. I think my encounters with the SPD, because I don't want to lump everybody into this, but my encounters with the SPD have been indicative of negligence and just overall ignorance about things that they should know and not just authoritarian takeover bullshit. So I think that Seattle is a really good example of a place that is quote unquote liberal, but in that I think there's a really strong community here of people that really care about meaningful change and being able to be part of that in even just the philosophical way and actioning outside of protests, donating to causes, being part of other causes. You know, I think that that's the healthiest way for me to do that. And so I commend the people who are there. I am sorry for the people who have lost their lives or have been injured. But for me, my own mental health and quite frankly, physical health as well, because my anxiety manifests a lot physically, I know that's not the right way for me to become part of the solution. So let me find other ways to do that. And I think that's one of those elements of self-care that you really have to don't feel guilty that that's not what you can do. It's okay that that's not what you can do. Right. Turning away from that is actually self-care. Turning away from the, that homeless person, unfortunately, again, you know, if you've, if you've ever done it once, you're like, okay, you know, whatever your experience was, be it bad or good. Mine was just, it wasn't a bad experience. It was just sucked up the whole day. You well, know? And that's and the so- thing to, to your point. It's also, there's a level of safety that you want to 
maintain because you don't know. And it, it it's I would argue it's not even about whether somebody's homeless or not. It's more about does somebody seem like they could be erratic? And then I'm potentially concerned about their response. I, this literally happened yesterday or two days ago where I said something to Holly. I was I was immediately uncomfortable when I walked into this aisle. And then I was like, I'm just going to act like I'm browsing for a minute. And then I'm going to turn around and walk away. I don't want to be intentionally rude, but I do want to get myself out of this situation. You're, you're nice. I would be like, Fuck this. I'm like, I just look at Dark the other way. Peace out, motherfucker. No, I gotta go. Yes. No, trust me. You know, the other day I was at Walmart, and every time I go to Walmart, I have a love hate relationship with Walmart. My IQ drops just a little bit. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. When I get there, and I'm like, I am Walmart. I am the people of Walmart when I'm at Walmart. So I'm not going to complain about it. But there was a gang of guys that came in, and they were a gang. And there's four of them. No, there were five. Like, recognizably recognizably they're in a gang and they're all wearing the bandana and they just with their black sunglasses on. And I've lived in big cities long enough that, Oh fuck, do I really need to go get what I was coming down that net? I'm going to wait. So I went down the other way and sure enough, there was something going on within 20 minutes on the other side of the store with those guys. So that that instinct of knowing, okay, I'm just not going to go. I forgot milk, milk and eggs. Let me go get the other stuff I needed on the other side of the store and come back around. And there was something going on with the security with them. Is that something that you feel like you've taught yourself over time to recognize that level of discomfort? And and is there something that happens for you both mentally and physically? Because I, the more therapy that I've done, the more it's like, well, notice how that feels in your body. And you're like, okay, it feels fucking uncomfortable. Get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. Well, you know what? It's that, that little gut. And I wrote about it in my book, In Middle Finger Happiness, or was it the startup, the little book of startup inspiration? Listen to your gut. How many times has that little voice in your head said, you know, you really ought to stay home tonight, but now you go out and then your car gets towed? Yeah. Or you better go get your umbrella and you don't, and then it pours rain. So I listened to that little voice, and that little voice said, don't even go down there. Don't even go down there. And I'm like, yeah, little voice. You know, so I'm a little talking to myself, the bobblehead. Hey, little voice, let's go. A hundred percent. There is an internal dialogue happening all the time. And more often than not, it's not just a stream of thought like, oh, this is my my thought track. It's more like having that internal conversation that's like, this is how you feel about it. And it's like, is that how you feel about it? Should you trust that? And you're like, just make the decision, Nikki. <laughs> I talk to myself all the freaking time. I mean, it's just, and I've done it more as I gotten older and I'm like, oh man, I'm turning into, you know, my mom or my oh, aunt. Oh, hundred percent. We all are. And it's like, God damn it. <laughs> okay. So I, you know what? Einstein talked to himself, uh, Abraham Lincoln, all these, just, you have to talk to yourself. There's nothing wrong with it. It's reasoning. Bingo. Yeah. It's reasoning, especially if I'm going to give a speech on something, I kind of want to hear you know, what am I doing? How do I sound? You know, this, oh, for sure. I definitely talk to myself. And like I said, with those little situations, how did I know that it was not? Well, I just knew. I mean, you're not, it doesn't take too much to put two and two together. Was I prejudging? You bet. Sorry, I was. But I think we do that inherently with certain situations. If you recognize that somebody could be a threat. And also, I just think in general, as women, especially, uh, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. And he was saying that his wife was watching The Bachelorette and we got into the topic of online dating and all of that stuff. And that's actually how he and his wife met. And he said, you know what? I, I read or heard somewhere that the thing that men fear the most on a 
first date or on a date is being laughed at by women, the thing women fear the most is being killed. And I was like, well, if that's not representative of how our society works, I think that like, I don't know what is. And it's true. You know, like I actually was surprised he said killed. I thought he was going to say sexually assaulted. And either way, they're both fucked up and awful and pretty much the most horrendous crimes you can think of. But men are worried about being fucking laughed at. I'm sorry, guys, but you need to figure that out. And also, you know what? I, I, I feel like this is how women do get away with crimes. If you've ever seen shows like Snapped and it's just, well, because nobody suspects you. <laughs> they're just, they're worried you're going to laugh at them. They're not worried you might kill them. It's fine. No, just don't laugh at me. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned your book, which I do actually, I want to talk about that because I think it is a great lesson in self-care because you've said you don't write self-help books. You write good struggle books so people can learn how to stop struggling. And this is a great way of thinking about our personal evolution. So did you feel it was important to make that distinction because it tends to be a little bit of a stigma when we think about things as self-help? You know, you think, oh, somebody's reading self-help books. You know, I think my, at least my interpretation growing up was self-help is something that is very whatever. What are you trying to do? Help yourself. What does that even mean? You know, and, and realistically, we should all be. We all should be self-repair. It's actually like a self-repair book. I think. Ooh, I like that. Self-repair. Hell yeah. Coin that if you haven't already. Yeah, I should call it a self-repair book. There's something I want to uh, write about the toolkit. You need to open up your own repair shop for yourself. And I wrote a, a magazine article for uh, Rockstar's Dream. They're a competitor for Maxim. And I wrote an article last month, not this month, I missed this month's deadline, but last month. And I wrote an article about the three D's. Nobody talks about the three D's, distractions, depression, and decisions. And one of them was that number one was we're all kind of fucked up. That's just the way it is. Number two, open up your own repair shop. And that's where you get that self-repair. It's, you know, I know certain things now to avoid and certain things to go forward to because of experience, because of shit shows because of not going down that aisle, you know, or not talking to that person or going that way. It's just called experience. So can I ask you a question real quick? So I love the concept of self-repair and I love that you said opening your own repair shop. I would like to invite the opportunity to leverage something my friend and I came up with, which was, and you can feel free to use. So I don't know if it's a question as much as it is sort of a, if you'd like this, you can use this. We were on the phone for four hours catching up. It'd been a long time. She's one of my best friends. And we were both discussing our relationships with our parents and just people around us who aren't helping themselves, who aren't repairing themselves. And I said, (laughs) it's sort of like if you were in a car that didn't have any brakes and was heading downhill towards a brick wall, would you paint it? Would you paint the car or would you fix the brakes? The outside matters, but it's not the most important thing. And you need the brakes to be able to drive the car. And so I like how that plays into what you were saying about repair. And I think that it's relevant because we do stigmatize these things for ourselves as well. We think, oh, I want my body to look this way and I want people to perceive me physically this way, or at least perceive me to be happy, even if I'm not happy. If you just put on the facade, whether it's literally your physical demeanor and your look, or it's just I'm trying to pretend that I'm happy and I'm not. These are all flaws as humans that we think that that is going to solve something for us when the inside isn't being worked on. 
Number one, you can't help the unwilling. I mean, you just can't. You can be blue in the face or whatever that saying is. You just can't help people that don't want help. Number two, the only one you can really self-destruct and self-repair is yourself. At the, at, the end of the, at the end of the day, I mean, that's it. You know, so many of us want to blame all oh, my childhood or blame this. And I've done that. But that's not where it is. It's where yeah. am I right now today? You know, October 22nd, I'm with Nikki right here. We're talking and whatever happened uh, earlier today, it's over, it's gone. And, and how do you keep going? And then this is the big one. When I ask people, when you put your head on your pillow at night, that's where it all comes down to. And then how do you wake up in the morning? Because yeah. all your, your lifestyle, your choices, your decisions, your indecisions, it all comes down to, are you okay? Are you happy? Are you satisfied? If not, you know, tweak it, fix it, repair it. Say, I'm sorry. You know, I had a, we had a little blowout. Not that even a blowout, but I had a, a disagreement with my husband last night. Said some, I was so tired. I was angry. That's where I was really angry, tired. And this morning I said, you know, I'm sorry. I was such a butt last night. I was so tired. And he goes, you know what? Me too. I'm sorry. You know, and we just, and we just had a good conversation and went on about our day, you know, pulling, t- pulling the blankets over. You're pissed off. I don't know if you've ever done that before when I was oh, younger. I yeah. used to act that way. Now I'll just call it. Look, I was an ass. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. This is what's going on with me. And what do you think? Blah, blah, blah. And so that's much healthier. But we don't know that when we're, you know, 18 and 19 and 20. Yeah, we're still formulating ourselves then, too. I mean, to the point of the conversation earlier, zero to six is very much that foundational understanding of self that is embedded in us. But our experiences obviously help us evolve. And I think when you have the chance to pull away from everything that you think you know about yourself and really try to understand yourself, that's when the magic happens. Because I spent most of my life being told to do things a certain way, being told this is the appropriate way to dress, to speak to people, to do X, to do Y. And don't get me wrong. I think some of these things are valid. I'm not going to sit here and completely shit on how my parents raised me. I think they did a really good job in a lot of ways. But what I recognize as an adult is that there were things that I needed that they couldn't give and quite frankly, still can't. And I've been better at asking for it. And this gets to your point of you can't help the unwilling and you also can't be heard by those unwilling to listen. And so I, I think that part of it is really relevant too, because you end up being responsible for how you continue in your life, regardless of where people do or don't show up for you. And when you're younger, it's a lot harder to decouple those experiences from your sense of self. So then typically you attach worth to that, right? Am I not worthy because I'm not getting what I need from somebody? And you're like, that's not what it's about. You have to decide that you're worthy. And it takes work to do that, at least speaking for myself. I've been in therapy really consistently for about two years now. And it was a bear to get started. I could have gone a lot sooner. And I remember when I started, my therapist said to me, okay, if we're going to do this, you need to see me weekly. And I remember being like, it just sort of come as I needed it. And and, and what I know from having done that before is that when you go, when you think that you need it, you probably needed it way sooner. Because until you get those skills to identify 
what it is that you're feeling, be able to communicate effectively like you were just saying you do with your husband. Holly and I do this so much better now as well. Oh, oh absolutely. It's like, it's- why am I just going to play petty games with you? Here's what's happening. This is real life. Let's move on. I don't yes, need to does. sit here and hold a grudge against you, even though we were both pissed. Let's right. hold on to the anger as long as it needs to be held on to, right? I'm not going to sit here and say that's not valid. But at right. the same point in time, coming from somebody who has had very substantial anger issues in my past, I've reduced that substantially. And I realize the reason is because I don't like how I feel after I'm a crazy bitch. It's not like I've gotten anything from it. So what's the point? Exactly. And you said something so important. I had to write down skills. We are These are skills. Like I said, it's a little toolbox that we have, our little repair shop. We get those skills as we get a little bit older or a little bit more I don't even want to call them battle, battle wounds. And you know, look, what's the final outcome here? What is going to be the final outcome? And this is something that I wrote that I knew I needed to share with you is what is your emotional regulator? Well, a regulator is a system that's designed to maintain energy. So we have to protect our energy, right? Constantly. I mean, even even with my family, I'm like, hey, guys, I'm going to be in a podcast. The doors are closed. Don't bother me unless you know, your arms, unless I up. bother you <laughs> or, or, or the house on fire, but then, yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, right. But, but we know that because we're kind of that family though, you know, nobody's going to knock on the door and ask for anything unless it's an emergency. But again, it's those skills and it's, it's a skill that's going to help you build yourself to a better human because we're always in repair mode. We're never done. God, we're I, never done. Well, I mean, it's frustrating and it's also beautiful. I think there's, a bit of a push and a pull with that. I love the fact that I can appreciate and respect myself more now than I ever have in my life. I certainly wouldn't want to be stuck in that sense of sort of being in fear of who I am and being afraid to talk about a lot of things. And this has become just as much of a vulnerable experience for me as it is for the people that I'm asking to join me on the show. And that's something that is just incredibly eye-opening for me. This is a form of self-care for me. This is a form of healing for me because I love being able to learn from other people and come away from these conversations, which may never have even been intended to educate me on anything, right? coming away from them and feeling this stronger sense of who I am because I've expanded my way of thinking in even just the smallest way. And that type of ongoing dedication to yourself is such an important element of self-care. But not everybody does that, Nikki. Not everybody does this. A lot of people don't. So that makes you a unicorn. We're like unicorns. So when you come across the person who's the douche canoe, or the whatever twat waffle, you're like, you know, I was literally just going to say twat waffle when you said douche canoe. (laughs) And I don't think we've ever used those terms with each other. And it just makes me feel even more connected than we were. We're more close to that. (laughs) You know, you twat fuck, but you'll know. You had your first warning at the beginning of the episode, people. You heard it. That was it. But you know that you know that you know. I don't want to have anything to do with that person. Meet them. Learn. I don't even want to know any more than, you know, when he especially says, hello, my name is whatever. And within 10, 15 seconds of talking to somebody, you can tell. You can oh, yeah. tell if you don't want to connect the dots. There's a and vibe. There's a vibe. We're, you know, we're all made of energy. 
And yeah. apparently some people's energy is stronger and brighter than others because, again, it's their regulator. Just like in a car. I think a car actually has a regulator. I think you just go with the mechanic shop for this analogy. It feels fitting. It feels fitting, Sharon. <laughs> yeah, the brakes. You know, you're like the brakes in the car, paint job. But yeah, we always have to work on that damn regulator, on those emotional things because we're, we're made of those ingredients. Yeah. I like thinking of that as ingredients too, the emotions that we hold and the experiences that we have. And those things are really interesting sometimes because one of the things that I've really discovered on my own journey is that I really couldn't see parallels between reactions I had when I was a kid and reactions that I'm having now as an adult because the scenarios that elicit those reactions aren't the same because I'm an adult or sometimes they're not the same when I'm being a petulant child than they might be. Uh, but I do think that being able to identify the way that I feel right now or the way that I'm reacting right now is also how I reacted when I was a kid because X, Y, Z happened. And when you're able to really correlate those responses that you have, you go a layer deeper and then you're able to come out of that experience with more skills and more mechanisms to help you try to eradicate or reduce those emotions if needed, or just identifying them and doing what therapists love to say and naming it. Oh, you name it. Yeah. Oh, wow. I never thought of thinking that. But you're just observing yourself. Most of us don't observe. We observe everybody else. Just like people like to see those makeover shows in the home. And then yeah. you look at the shit in your house and you're like, yeah, you know, because we love <laughs> to see everybody else doing it. But we won't do it. Yeah, but yeah. if we can stop and practice and observe ourselves, and I always ask myself this question, where is my mind? Why am I having this thought right now? Yeah, that's super smart to do too, though, because I think that's the type of observation that you're talking about. It starts with the questioning. It starts with why. I'm having this reaction. Why? Right. And there's a reason for it. But then I have found myself, one of the reasons that I ask a lot of questions sometimes when I meet somebody, I don't want them to ask me anything about myself because I don't feel like opening up about myself at that time. I don't know if that's selfish or what it is. I think it's guarded. Yeah, there's times when I am guarded more than others. I don't know what triggers that. So I have to stop and go, wait a minute, you need to ask, let them ask some questions about you because you're asking, asking, asking. Or maybe that's just the podcaster in me kind of just, you know, interviewing, interviewing. Oh, I mean, I, yeah, obviously I do the same thing and that's and then, hard. It's hard, but then you think about, well, wait a minute, I really don't feel like talking about myself today for whatever reason. Yeah. But it's good to be an active listener too, right? I think that we, we can chat and I, and I love a good chat. And I also think that because we, we do this, we have become at least for me, I've become, I don't know if it's helped you also, really sort of indulge in other people's stories because you are involved in the process and you're part of what makes your content what it is and powerful. But the goal of having guests on is to open really everybody's minds to the possibility of that conversation. And so you want to know what you don't know from them. So I get that. And, and I don't want to always preach about, oh, this is my life and this is the thing. The philosophy, the known knowns, the unknown knowns. Who was that? Who was that? Uh, that wasn't the Frederick Nietzsche. That was somebody. I can't remember. But there's the known knowns and the unknown knowns. Oh, I've never heard that. I'm going to have to Google it though. 
Go Google it. That was interesting because we all have the known knowns and the unknown knowns and the known knows. But yeah, you're right. We start asking those questions because honestly, at the end of the day, we're all human. I mean, you know, hopefully this will help somebody who's in their car or maybe at their desk with their earbuds on. And we live in an earbud world. Like I tell people, we're always with earbuds for whatever reason. And that's one of the reasons that I do my podcast. And I think you do too, to help other people. And it also helps yourself. Yeah, it's it's a fringe benefit for sure. I think that the primary goal was elevate people's voices and help people share their stories. I care about that. I want people to feel seen and heard and to create a safe space for that. And at the same time, I crave that. So it is in a way very self-serving without the intention of being that. Right. When we all have things that we're working on every day, I, I know I am. I mean, I'm not perfect. I don't, never want to be perfect. There's no such thing as perfect. Well, that's a, right. Well, what's perfect? What's normal? None of it means anything. So maybe a little bit better than yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Am I still trying? Am I still trying? Because I think that's the question. And some people never, never try. And so, you know, I've been thinking about self-care in general and sort of when we think about it, we think about people wanting to go for a walk in nature or take a bath or do something like that that is a more tangible type activity Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. that you could photograph and show somebody and tell them you're a hashtag self-care. But Do you feel like there's something that particularly calls to you as a way to kind of get out of your own head and start to be more in the present and experiencing life the way that you're describing it? Getting to those points where I'm taking the initiative right now to have this moment of my personal evolution and taking it for myself. Oh, absolutely. I still have my my old puppy bike. There's a Schwinn and a puppy in the garage. And just to go on, a, I say, a quick five-mile bike ride, half an hour, 20 minutes, and then a jog. If it's a good day, I'll still run. But that stuff clears my head. That's a, that's almost a whole hour of me time. It's me and some music and you're listening to the lyrics. And that is self-repair or self-help yeah. if you want to call it. And that's when for me, you know, sweating and spitting when I run, there's something, there's something about spitting when you run. And there's just something about being a very raw human outdoors doing that. That is one of my things. It's not shopping. It's not going to the mall and getting with the girls. And then, you know, occasionally I will go to happy hour with some friends, but I'm not, that's not to me a self repair. I don't even think it is self repair. Is it going to the mall and then blowing a bunch of money? Retail therapy? Yeah, retail therapy. You know, so for me, it would be outdoorsy. It would be doing, it would be getting out and doing that, being with the dog, sometimes just being in the front yard with my kids doing his remote control little truck and I'm sitting there watching him and we're just talking. I mean, do you think it's partially a connection to nature that you find really soothing in general? Yeah. And I don't know why. I I feel the same way. I feel very attracted to the water, especially very, very common growing up in a landlocked state. What do you do? You, You can get to a lake, sure, but it's just not the same as living in the Pacific Northwest and just having all of the access to everywhere you go, you're near water. And it's this is really, I don't know, I think it's part of why I've always craved the West Coast too. There's, yeah, there's beaches on the East Coast and and in the South, but it's not, there was something that felt unexplored. And I, I heard something once that, you know, this inherent desire a lot of people have to move to the West Coast can sort of be tied to the idea of the first people to explore it and actually go over the Rocky Mountains. And it was this very unknown thing. And so there's this 
intrigue almost that the West Coast offers. And and sometimes as human beings, we feel very drawn to that because it's this Maybe that, you know, that could be in your DNA. Mythical almost, you know. Yeah, but you can have that in your DNA. I didn't understand this until recently. You know, trauma DNA in our ancestors. Oh, yeah. That was a real fun thing for me to learn. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, no wonder, you know, and I'm thinking about it. So maybe it was in your DNA about the traveling and going to the West Coast. And that's interesting. Yeah. And going back and having that adventure. You never, you don't know. You know, you're totally right. And It's interesting that you said that about the generational trauma side of things, because it's something that I think actually really pertains to this conversation in the sense of acknowledgement of what you experience, because I do think that some of the struggle that we go through as human beings, even if we're doing the work and we're trying to figure it out, we can't. And we're like, what the fuck's going on? Why can't I get to that? What is this? And you have to start going a layer deeper and being like, could something have happened to my mother or my grandmother that would have impacted me? Because it's past maternally, right? So I think it's yeah, mother to child. So it could still be a male child, but the premise being that it's passed down genetically through women. And what's really scary about that too is that trauma for women over time and generations mm. it has probably been. It's embedded code like that HTML, dude. It's not going anywhere. It's- yeah. And and that's almost like a, an entire lifetime for us of not really knowing where some of these things came from because it's just inherently built into the way the world works and also potentially things we don't know about our own family. So do you feel like there are things that, you've always sort of recognized to be that and then you were finally able to identify because of what you learned? Or do you think that some of those things that, you know, are are passed down are things that you didn't really even understand until that concept came to the forefront? It's the the latter, the one that you just said, because I know for my grandmother, she was abused by her her mom, or they they would spank her. They would whip her if she came home late, you know, and then her brothers would take the belt and spank her. But this was back in the 40s. And then her grandmother also came from an abusive upbringing. And so you got to realize that stuff is, it trickles down. And so when I look at it now, it's like, okay, now I know my earlier years, why I was attracted to the wrong person. Now I'm with the right person. Not that, you know, I don't know how he puts up with me, but Say you know, no. <laughs> right. But I mean, you, you look at it and again, it's just making a decision. When I first got married, I was 19. It was, I, I don't like this. I got divorced in six months. Just didn't work. And I yeah. told my dad and he's like, well, just get divorced. And then I waited 10 years, got married. It didn't work. It was a year and got divorced, waited another 10 years. Now I'm with this guy going on 20. So had I been that girl at 19 who would have been scared of what is everyone going to think? You've only been married in six months and you already got divorced or, oh my God, you're getting married and divorced again. You know, I, that went through my mind, but I, I think I was the one that broke that cycle because of looking back at my grandmother, my great grandmother, my great grand, great grandmothers, those stories, they just put up with it. Yeah. They they just, they, they had no choice. It's an interesting phrase, right? I think what's challenging about that is, As humans, we always have choice, but whether it's a safe choice to make is a different story. That's how I'm trying to think about it, because 
I totally agree with what you're saying foundationally about that's not accepted. They couldn't do that. They could have been severely hurt, killed, beaten, whatever it would be. Right. right? I get that there is a substantial impact to that and I'm not minimizing that at all. But it just goes to show how unfair that is to people who are in bad situations and that even if you do the work, there is some responsibility, especially now because you talk about breaking the the generational cycle. I've said this to people before. I truly think that our generation of parents, because we have some years between us, but collectively our parents, they're sort of the last generation to be able to not say shit about how they feel because we've basically been handed all of the fucking trauma that you just talked about. And they're like, yeah, but you can't talk about that. And you're like, Yes, yes, I can. And I'm gonna because I'm not okay right now. This isn't cool. And I feel like it's basically been decades and centuries of compounded trauma. Yeah, exactly. And then they're like, can you can you handle it? Can you handle it? And we're like, no, 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 I can't. can't. Uh, You know, I'll never forget having a talk with my grandmother. She died at 98. She fell asleep in her in her sleep at 98. Well, good for her. That's sort of the way I think if it's going to happen, that's a good age and that's a good way. <laughs> she was awesome. And she had a potty mouth on her, but I remember her telling me, don't take shit from nobody. You know, she always say, would tell me that. But she was the one that was, I would say, about to break the cycle. So here she is. And this is in the 1940s. This is what, World War II, yeah. I think? Three kids, single mom, Latina, got married again or got married three more kids. So she's got six kids, dude. She was working at a brewery, a cigarette packing factory. And then she was a butcher. So when she got home at night, I can't, hold on. I'm sorry. I just need a moment to process that. Okay. Oh my, it's such a sign of the times. Number one, what a combination of jobs. <laughs> and number two, wh- how, how did she manage that? Women are fucking badasses. She said, you know, I would take a, my uncle John, her son at the time and put him in a box at the cigarette packing factory so she could breastfeed him as a newborn and she'd work and she, she you know the other kids would were in school or they would be taken care of from the other grandparents or her mom but it's crazy how she had all those jobs she was, I mean I don't even understand you can't even do that now and have that many kids so I don't even it makes no sense that's but you know what power to her because it's inspirational and I mm-hmm. think that We need to hear more of that. You know, I was actually reading something yesterday about sort of the revisionist history concept, which for I think it's a new term that I've needed to acquire and feel comfortable using because it's just weird to sort of go your whole life having a preconceived notion of things. And I mean, yeah, except it's this much of what they actually needed to tell you about. I remember even growing up saying to my parents, why am I learning about the fucking Revolutionary War for a third time? Literally, there's millions of other things we could be learning about in school. And we went to the second best school district in the state. So what else is happening? You know, so I think that part of it is... Having women like your grandmother, uh, having women like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, these these powerhouses, it really this is a little bit of a divergence from the the topic at hand around self-care at large. But it just really makes me think about the fact that it was hard for me to uh, similarly to the idea of revisionist history. I totally understand the concepts. Same thing with patriarchy. But it was a thing for me to actually say these things and really acknowledge it and put it out there and have an opinion about it. And it really goes to show that there is something that people who oppress women fear and it's with good reason because you underestimate at every turn 
and we just keep coming back with the hit. So, so realize that you're not shutting this down. And the reason you're trying to shut it down is because, you know, we could win this. And that scares the shit out of you. So anyway, sorry, a little side for for female power, but seriously, it drives me insane. <laughs> but you know, and not all women are like that. Yeah, not all are wired like that. I don't know what happened. She just kind of was one of these. Hey, I'm not going to put up with this. I got this to do. I have bills to pay, and I got to go do this. Yeah, and that was it. And there's also the whole concept of really believing in in being submissive. And I think that truly does tie back to the concept of self-care, because I think the idea of being submissive and being inclined to be submissive as any human being of any kind is Mm -hmm. just a real disservice to your own humanity and your own sense of self. And I keep coming back to that phrase, sense of self, but I feel like I've had different versions of who I am in my life. And I look back at some of them and I'm like, what the fuck were you doing, Nikki? But there were different versions of your life. So yeah, yeah you're going to. Very yeah. true. That's very, a good way of looking like, at it. That's like, yeah, I mean, this is it. All I know is the the clock ticks and the days go by. We don't have as much time as we think we do. I know. It gives me anxiety just to think about it. The, the, oh, the, so that TED talk that I was talking about that I listened today, you know, she was told at 19, you have pancreatic cat cancer and you have six months to live. And I was thinking, you know, maybe in my own little twisted way, if I think that way, if I think, okay, I have until next July and that's it. What the fuck am I going to be doing in the next six months? I have stuff I want to complete. I have people I want to encourage. I want to. So I think if we think that way, we would accomplish a lot more. And that's just a brand new way. A lot faster because there's an efficiency component to it where we sit here and we dick around all the time acting like we have all the time in the world. And even for the trivial stuff, just do the shit so you don't have to think about it. Don't let it take up space in your brain. You know, it's just not worth it. I have a quotable that I put out there. It's on Instagram and it's also on my, my Facebook. Finally got a Facebook page, Sharon Lisa Plotham. We will add all of the links to the show notes for your convenience, listeners. This one I wrote, our biggest goal should be to stop fucking around with our potential. I love that, that so it. much. That's yeah. so, I mean, that's probably a new tattoo for me. Well, I saw you had your middle finger happiness tattoo, but I didn't see it today. I saw it in a photo that you had posted and I was like, oh, I really, I, I really it. dig that. Because I've been debating, I've been debating on wanting to get one of the icon for my logo. Oh, you should. You should. I appreciate the support. (laughs) I mean, I I guarantee you this will happen at some point. (laughs) I might just get that. That's cute. Yeah, but I like this one too. Start it from zero. This reminds me every day. I love that. Yeah, start it from zero. And then there's a little one back here. That's all I have. But I want some more. I just haven't gone. Well, I think tattoos are also a form of of healing and self-care if there's intention behind them, you know, not like a drunken mistake at 2 a.m. But I do feel like there's this, for me especially, the first tattoo that I got was something that a friend of mine who passed away when uh, we were 16 had drawn that his parents put on the back of his prayer card. And it's just a little kind of looks tribal, but it's not. And now it's just a splotch because I didn't know what a good tattoo artist was, but I refused (laughs) to cover it up because of what it means. And so even if it could look better as the same thing, I got it when I got it with the intention that I had because of what I was going through. And that was a way for me to keep this person consistently part of my life when they no longer could be. And so when I get tattoos, it's really important for me to have meaning behind them. And the one that I regret probably in some capacity I have over my 
right shoulder on the back is we were in Hawaii. We got married and Holly had something really specific she wanted to get for a tattoo, an infinity sign with the Hawaiian islands sort of connecting them. And then I was like, I really want another tattoo, but I don't know what it is yet. And I kind of tried to have the guy design it and it's fine. But the way that it swirls, people always mistake it for when you can't see the full thing for an octopus because it has Polynesian symbols in it as well. So it looks like, I guess people think it looks like a tentacle. And I'm just like, this is why you don't get tattoos that don't mean something very explicit to you. And that's also why most of mine are also words, by the way. Yeah, that's because I have tattoos that go, well, a tattoo that goes from one bicep to the other. And it's a Walt Whitman quote. So I, I was like, my body might just be covered with quotes at some point. Which quote is it from Walt Whitman? I like him. It's, it's from Leaves of Grass. I swear to you, there are divine things more beautiful than words can tell. Oh. And I have it bookended with these two small fleur-de-lis as sort of a way to commemorate the four months that I spent in, living in Florence studying abroad. So it was a very intentional thing for me to combine that and create something that I think for me, it's very much about memories. And to me, Memories and nostalgia are an extremely important element of my own self-care. It's why I love to look at old photos. It's why I love looking at my parents' old photos. It's why I love exploring sort of the depths of who I once was and who they once were and, you know, really creating a fuller narrative for ourselves so we can feel more connected to that. Oh, well, what other things can we talk about for self-repair? Well, what do you think? the biggest risk we take when we don't spend time on self-repair is what do you see as the the unfortunate outcome of that from my experience you wind up sometimes taking things out not on people but maybe your words don't come out right when you're conversing because you just you just you need to download just like your iphone at night it doesn't update well we need to do that too and if you go too many days, if I go too many days not being outside, I know. It's like I'm getting constipated with all this bullshit and I, I got to release it. Even my husband's like, hey, you know what? You need to go run. Go Take run. an emotional go, laxative. Yeah, go get yeah, That's basically what it is. I love that. You know, go, go for your bike walk. Go for your bike ride. You know, get out. And it's true. And I think that's we get clogged up. We, we don't realize it comes out in other areas. Yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about it too. Holly is so supportive in the same way when I sort of reach my limit. I'm a little less consistent with that sort of regular maintenance of self-repair. Mm-hmm. I need those oil changes more and yeah. I don't and I don't get them. But once in a while I do a full-on detail of the situation and my inspection, let's say, if we continue with the car metaphor, is that every once in a while it's good for me to go, at least pre-COVID, go on a trip for myself and just mm-hmm. either spend time with friends or go somewhere and just be, you know, away from things. And right before COVID happened, I was at a breaking point and I, I literally just said to Holly, I've got to get to a beach. I need to get to one now. I'm going to Maui. Your mom's coming to visit. This is where we, this is where we go our separate ways. You stay in Washington with your mom and I'm going to go have an Island retreat by myself and catch some waves. Hang 10. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. But it, but it really truly was such a, liberating and healing experience because 
I made the conscious decision not to go to, unfortunately now in retrospect, I wish I had maybe done that a little bit, but I didn't go to see family. I didn't go to see friends because I knew if I went to see anybody else, I would not focus on me and I needed to focus on me. I will not focus on me when there's other people to focus on. And that gets back to what you said before. Uh, In fact, I just wrote this down. We got to, oh. One of the reasons I think we don't do the self-care, the lack of self-care, is we think that putting ourselves first means you put everybody else last. Or you're being selfish, right? You can't possibly do that. It's not fair to do that. And you're like, it's not fair to you to do that. No, you have to. If I'm not strong and able, I can't have a, a, a good day for my family. I mean, if you're, your glass of, oh, here we go. There's water. How much water's in here? Yeah. Very little. You could probably take a tiny sip and I can take, but if my glass is full of water, I can share this, but yeah. I can't share this if it's empty or hardly any water. And so that's why we have to look at it too. You you have to take that time back. And if you don't, you know, I was a single mom my first with my first kid and you think, oh, I just don't have the means or the way. Like you said, it could be just taking a bubble bath. It could just be closing that door and isolating yourself and just meditating. And and if that's as good as it's going to get, take it. Yeah. I I mean, absolutely. I mean, I trust me. I think sometimes when my sister gets into the bathroom just to use the bathroom and one of her kids isn't with her, that's self-care. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. They're two and not able to walk uh, the ages. So like, so they're, so she's got just constant barrage of needs. And, and so I really respect that, especially seeing all my friends and my sister going through that. There are a ton of quotes in your book, Middle Finger Happiness, that I love. And I could go through with a highlighter and and pull out probably 90% of it, like I said. And I really value the candor and the raw authenticity that comes with it. And one of the things that you wrote was, we're durable, original, and slightly irregular. We understand that our seemingly wasteful experiences really do push us to understand and accept who we are. And I feel like that's a really strong mm-hmm. quote to sort of wrap the conversation on because it addresses this. Oh, it gave me chills. Uh, uh, you wrote that shit. I <laughs> You're so good. <laughs> um, so chills. No. You're like, wow. oh man, that's talent. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because that happens, right? You write something, you're like, wait, did I write that? Was I that profound? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you write, totally. you write, yeah, especially if you write a lot. Yeah. You're like, did I write that? Yeah. No, sometimes I do have to fact check myself when I write something and I don't have it well documented. I'm like, I'm going to Google this and see if it was actually me that wrote this. ADHD is a dream. So <laughs> in writing that, you know, I love the three words used to describe durable. We are resilient. We come back. We just have to, we have to allow ourselves to maintain who we are in, in amongst everything going on in our lives. And original, you know, none of us are the same and we shouldn't be the same. And I think valuing that originality is such a crucial component of who we are as human beings. The part that stands out to me the most and that I absolutely love is that we're slightly irregular. And I vibe with that on so many levels because I absolutely am in a million ways. But What does that mean to you? And how do you think that really helps us formulate how we feel about ourselves getting to that point of radical acceptance? So how did I come up with that? And I know exactly the day how I came up with that. I was at the family dollar general, the 99 cent store, and there's a rack of clothes and the tag says slightly irregular. (laughs) And I'm going through it and I'm kind of like, well, how, how bad is it? You know, I'm looking at it. And then I also see a mom belittling her 
tween daughter, maybe 12 year old in a really bad way. And I thought to myself, man, I hope she grows up to be durable and original. And then I'm going to fuck it. I'm going to buy this slightly irregular t-shirt. But that's how that whole quotable came. It was a combination of getting a t-shirt that says slightly irregular and witnessing a young girl just being, she was just, her mom didn't need to talk to her that way. Now, maybe her mom was having a bad day or maybe her mom's just a, an ass. I don't know. But I know I wouldn't have talked to my kid that way. Yeah. So again, I was thinking, I hope she grows up to be durable and original and I'm going to take this slightly regular shirt. And that was all connecting. And that's how I write. I, I seek things. Content lives around us. That's a really awesome sentiment for sure. Content that absolutely was- lives around us. That's such oh, a good, right. that's such a good line um, and, and thought. Sharon, the more that I, I get to know you, the more that I get to speak with you, I just feel so honored and, and humbled that oh, you are you. who you are. You are one in a million, one in seven billion. You are you are truly unique and a beautiful human being. And I feel very lucky that our mutual experiences have brought us together to have not only this conversation, but the relationship that I'm just really looking forward to wow. having, hopefully for a lifetime, um, because you have such a unique perspective on the world. And I want to do everything I can to help other people see that and hear that. And also just to, you know, continue to forge a relationship with somebody who I I truly admire and appreciate the perspective that you offer and the confidence and care that you, you take with your everyday life. You truly changed a lot of the things that I've sort of come into these conversations thinking and, and re-architecting my own way of working through my life. So thank you for that. Wow. I'm really excited for people to hear this. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you made me tear up. Yeah, I am. I'm a sensitive bitch. <laughs> no, hey, listen, you know what? I, I, can't, no, I can't say that that's not a bad thing. I have a friend who always says, you know, it's just as important as it as it is to laugh yeah. that it is to cry. So, you know, I, oh, I, I share that sentiment. Oh, well, you know what? Likewise here, I really cherish these times and I've enjoyed this. I don't want it to end, but I know it has to. No, I know. Totally. Uh, People don't need to hear us talk for three hours. I mean, go start your own podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but really, I can't thank you enough for taking the time and being patient. And we got this all wired up and got it going. And I wish you continued success in whatever area of your life that you're aiming for. And I think some amazing things. In fact, I'll say, I think I know great things are coming your way. Thank you so much, Sharon. That truly means a lot. I just got chills. You got chills too. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're you're such an amazing human. And I'm, I'm grateful that the, the world has connected us because, you know, especially now, mm-hmm. I think more than ever, we need to know that we aren't alone and that there are people who see us and, and can validate our experiences and also be with us for the ride. And just for the last line for your listeners, you know, whatever doubts you're having, don't give in to your doubts. You know, when you're second guessing, you just you, you're leaning more toward the doubt versus the, OK, I'm just going to go do it. And if I fail, big deal. And if I yeah. succeed, big, big deal. You've got to get so used to failing that failing is not a big deal anymore. For sure. I like yeah. the idea of failing fast. Um, that's something I've learned from mm. my day job as a product manager is you screw it up and then you fix it and you go into repair mode. <laughs> <laughs> repair mode. Well, thank you so much Thanks. again for having me as a guest on your podcast. Absolutely. I can't wait. Um, We will absolutely have another conversation at some point. And Mm. in the meantime, I hope you stay safe and well and that we will just, you know, keep this conversation going. 
Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Thanks for listening and a big thank you to Sharon Zapata for sharing her story and her time. Check out this episode's show notes for a link to Sharon's book, Middle Finger Happiness, available now on Amazon. You can also find the Middle Finger Happiness podcast wherever you listen. Be sure to follow Sharon on Instagram and Twitter at Sharon Lee Zapata to learn more about her artwork, writing, and overall awesome personality. You can also check out her website at SharonLeeZapata.com. This episode's Who the Fuck for a Cause is in support of Houston Area Women's Center. If you have the means, visit whothefck.com slash donate to contribute and help provide resources to survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Make sure you subscribe to the Who the Fuck podcast on your preferred platform. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and share the love by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Share your email at whothefck.com to receive updates about the podcast, merch promos, and more. Until next time. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's his dad? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. Touchdown! On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid.